You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Tanya Ramos and I'm a clinical nurse educator for the Outreach Education Program with the Education Hub here at the RCH. I'm also a clinical nurse specialist in PACU. Joining us today are Dr. Stefan Sabato and Associate Professor Elliot Long. Stefan is a full-time anaesthetist at the Royal Children's Hospital. Airway management is one of his passions and he has been involved with the RCH Airway Special Interest Group since 2008. He's also the airway lead for the Department of Anesthesia. The Special Interest Group oversees clinical governance in the airway management throughout all the critical areas of the hospital. Stefan is also a member of the Anesthesia Research Group with the Murdoch Institute of Research. He enjoys bike riding, just like every other anaesthetist in our department, and I wonder if this is a prerequisite actually to being an anaesthetist. A fun fact about Elliot is that he's an apiarist and keeps a hive of bees in his backyard. Elliot is an emergency physician here at the RCH. He completed his specialist paediatric emergency training here after completing a critical care fellowship at the British Columbia Children's Hospital in Vancouver, Canada. As an ED clinician, Elliot has had the pleasure of collaborating with the Departments of Anesthesia and Pain Management, PICU, NICU, PETS and Piper, through the Special Interest Group, chaired by Dr. Stefan Sabato. This group has been highly functional in standardising airway management in all clinical areas of RCH, with similar approach, equipment, escalation pathways, in addition, the group has facilitated cross-developmental airway training using simulation to focus on human factors training. Stefan and Elliot are joining me today to discuss difficult airway management from both the anesthesia perspective and the emergency department perspective. Welcome, Stefan and Elliot. I'm so pleased that you both are joining me today. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks very much, Tanya. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Just to start off with, if you could tell us a little bit more about this kind of special interest group that is happening here at RCH in regards to airway management. And I guess, Elliot, you from the emergency physician uh, perspective and Stefan, you from the anesthetic kind of perspective, you know, as you are driving this. So maybe we can start with you. The concept of airway management is actually quite broad and, and perhaps bigger than many people might realise in terms of both what is an airway mm -hmm. and, and who manages airways and, yeah. and how those airways can be managed. So it can encompass pretty much everyone in the hospital from different medical specialties, nursing specialties and, and, and allied health. Yeah. From an anesthesia perspective, we are, uh, I suppose, specialists in laryngoscopy mm -hmm. and the passing of a endotracheal tube into the trachea. And we're also, I suppose you could say, experts at at face mask uh, uh, ventilation and other means of, uh, of supraglottic uh, uh, ventilation. But we're not the only ones who do it. And there are many other aspects uh, of airway management which involve problems below the entrance to mm -hmm. the trachea, which we call the larynx or the glottis, in, in the distal airways. And there are problems in the, in the upper airways as well. And you uh, would often get called, I guess, as a, um, you know, from various departments, not just ED, but, you know, maybe from NICU and other places that require kind of emergency intubation to act as that extra resource because of the expertise that you have. Yeah, that's right. The purpose of the group was to get everyone together in the, and to have a shared mental model mm -hmm. so that we are all on the same page, teaching the same things, using the same equipment, acting in the same manner and have a great understanding of our each specialty's areas of expertise and perhaps limitations and know when to call for help. That's uh, so and important, to also to empower 
for example, in the case of Elliot, the emergency physicians to manage their own airways, manage them well, be confident to be able to manage them without us and to be very comfortable to ask us in an appropriate time and fashion to come and assist when necessary. So we have clear defined roles, expectations and escalation pathways and the group which consists of myself, Elliot, other members of the emergency department, mm-hmm. other members from other critical care specialties, this, this sort of group which is a communication network really and we help each other out with more than just urgent clinical needs but with education, governance regarding yeah. equipment and standardisation. We try to uh, work together as much as we can to do our educations together but it's a little bit hard so now we just sort of seed faculty so we can ask each other to have uh, senior medical staff come and attend our education uh, sessions to provide different perspectives. Yeah, that's and, great. And um, like we, for example, we send anaesthetic fellows and anaesthetic consultants to the neonatal intensive care when they're doing their airway education yep. sessions to provide firstly just extra hands, extra bodies to, to mm-hmm. perform the tasks, but also to provide that expertise. Yeah. Likewise, when I have new rotational trainees, I like to take them down to the resus center in the emergency department and get them to meet emergency consultants like Elliot, show them the mm-hmm. environment, make them uh, familiar with their environment, all with the goal of allowing individuals to perform to their best ability. Yeah, that's so important. And I guess, you know, all that communication and education and standardization, really the hope is that it will lead to better outcomes and better care and standardized care, you know, throughout the hospital. Would you agree with that, Elliot? Yeah, that's definitely got to be the end point is improved patient care and patient outcomes. Um, That's always a little bit hard to demonstrate with a program as broad as uh, the Airway Special Interest Group. But I think the idea of bringing together a group of clinicians um, from different specialties that have a forum to discuss airway management in the context of the patient group that they look after. Mm -hmm. So it's great to get the perspective of a neonatologist or the perspective of a retrievalist or the perspective of um, an anaesthetist that's managing, you know, Mm -hmm. true difficult airways or in my case, um, you know, physiologically difficult patients that that, um, are being intubated because they have, uh, you know, seizures or sepsis or something. To have that group come together to be able to um, come up with a airway guideline or algorithm, Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of the first step when we first got together. Yeah, it's a game changer. It really, it puts everyone on the same page. That idea of the Mm -hmm. shared mental model throughout the hospital is so important. The group has had a lot of other functions that Stefan's mentioned. But I think one of the important things is the the kind of recognition that every specialty brings something to the table. Yeah, definitely. Um, that the, the management of airways happens in the context of the management of the patient as a mm-hmm. whole. It's okay for us to have areas of expertise and areas where we're not expert and ask for help in those areas. So we're not kind of tied to the idea that who's the airway expert in the hospital. We, we know it's the anesthetist. That's mm-hmm. what they do for their bread and butter. Yeah. Um, but we can comfortably say who's who's got expertise in team management and yeah. um, crisis resource management and recess room management. And I think that's something that we can own as emergency physicians. Yeah, definitely. And at the same time, the neonatologists and the, the intensivists, um, they all we all bring something to the table. So this is kind of a, a great forum for us to be able to kind of cross-pollinate and um, and absolutely the end point is safer patient management. Yeah, absolutely. And just um, kind of a final question in regards to the group. How many times a year would you would you meet 
We have flurries of activity yeah. where we have certain issues that we need to address or certain things that we would like to achieve. It's probably an important thing for people that yeah. are doing this in their hospital to yeah. know. It's, it's actually a hard group to maintain momentum with because we all have, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of Clin interest yeah. in clinical commitments and other commitments. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's something that we should dive into a little bit just yeah. to, just to highlight it's not easy. When, I mean, the group formed yeah. probably in 2008 or 2009, mm -hmm. roughly yeah. around then. And it, it, it sort of, you know, has, it wasn't like a formal declaration. These things or evolve organically yeah. and we had an idea of what we wanted to do and it's grown since then. The initial thing was to establish an algorithm. It's what that algorithm means. It's how that algorithm is employed yeah. that makes it important. So it all sort of evolves from then. But that is, I suppose, a, a focal point. From the algorithm, mm -hmm. everything evolves and the group met quite a lot at the during those early years to establish what it was we were trying to achieve and how we yeah. were going to try and achieve it. And then it meant for ongoing sort of education sessions. And then when we've had to re uh, revise the algorithm, yeah. uh, when there's new equipment mm -hmm. that we want to introduce, we meet and discuss. In regard to that point, we're trying to ensure that the equipment is standardized and uniform in its layout and consistency throughout the hospital. So that if we do have to help each other out, we know that we're going to have the same equipment that's available, what, what you have in anesthesia, you've got it available in the um, emergency department. Likewise, if uh, our fancy piece of equipment mm -hmm. is broken, I know that I can borrow the yeah. same piece of equipment from ED, vice versa. Yeah, some redundancy in, in equipment. Mm. And then we also had a flurry of activity just as COVID hit because yeah, that's... airway management became a big deal for most hospitals. And really um, had to kind of alter and change the way that you did things in regards to, you know, aerosol absolutely. generating procedures and what yeah. that, the implications of that meant. Yeah. And, and a lot of hospitals came up with an, an airway team that, mm -hmm. that managed airways throughout the hospital. And we had to discuss whether that was applicable at RCH and what we were going to uh, use as our approach. Mm -hmm. And um, that meant significant changes in equipment personnel that performed intubations, the PPE that was required, yeah. you know, we introduced you know, viral filters, we introduced inline suction, mm -hmm. it brought the routine use of video assisted laryngoscopy with the with, um, certain device, the CMAC yeah. in our in our hospital. Um, so there were major changes with COVID that was another focal point for the airway special interest group to get together again. Yeah, oh fantastic. We also meet when we decide to audit our, our efforts mm -hmm. and, and perhaps publish them and we get together as an as an you know as an authorship group as well yeah. to to sort of you know publish things in the literature. And I'd have to say Elliot's been great in that. He's sort of led the charge mm -hmm. um, in terms of how airways are managed in our emergency department, um, airing the dirty laundry of how it was and how we needed to improve yeah. the efforts that we've undergone to improve them, which have stemmed from this special interest group. And then the, the, the evidence that they actually work mm -hmm. and has actually made a difference. Uh, you rarely actually see that in the literature that you have this kind of sequential series mm -hmm. of research which is published which says we have identified a, an area for which can be improved. These are the steps that, you we undertook, that we're yeah. going to undertake and this is the results yeah. over, over years.
Yeah, that's that's super super important, um, and I guess kind of that leads me maybe um, asking the next question in regards to both of your clinical settings look after children that perhaps have difficult airways or they're labelled potentially as a difficult airway if they're coming to have an anaesthetic or maybe in your case we didn't know the background history of this child and it's an unknown presentation. Can you take us through kind of the patient population that you would see that perhaps would have a difficult airway and they might be uh, a difficult bag mass ventilation or a difficult intubation? Yeah, you bet. Um, Thanks for the question. Um, because this is, as a clinician, what, what all of us worry about really is the, the unanticipated yeah. difficult airway. And I guess there's a few different aspects to answering that question. The first one is that every airway that comes in to our ED mm-hmm. is treated as a potential yeah. difficult intubation. And yeah. therefore, for every intubation, we plan for difficulty and for mm-hmm. unsuccessful attempts all the way down to, on our, our algorithm, down to plan D or front of neck access. Yeah. So we don't limit the planning stage of things to only when we find that there is a difficult airway there. It's all planned in advance. And the second thing uh, to say is that there are difficulties encountered at multiple levels Mm -hmm. um, managing sick patients who need to be intubated. And we divide those into anatomically difficult airways, Mm -hmm. which is, as you mentioned, difficulty, you know, usually we define that as difficulty visualizing the the glottic opening Mm -hmm. or passing an endotracheal tube. Um, But that's actually the minority of difficulty that we encounter managing sick patients who need to be intubated. Most of the difficulties is encountered with the patient physiology being grossly deranged Mm -hmm. and needing, you know, resuscitation before we embark on the intubation attempt. Uh, Or the difficulties with the situation that the patient arrives to hospital in, meaning that there are multiple people that are looking Mm -hmm. after the patient um, that probably don't know each other. Yeah. And potentially using equipment that they haven't used before, hopefully not in our setting, mm-hmm. but there's definitely that possibility, um, not having a shared mental model and those kind of human factor elements that play a huge part in, in adverse events. And so, for our listeners, can you just explain those a, a little bit about those human factors? It's kind of harkens back to something I said before, that main goal is to allow people to perform to their best mm-hmm. ability. The people who work in this hospital, their best performance is 99.9% of the time going to be adequate. But certain things which can happen which will stop someone from performing to their best ability. Mm-hmm. So, And that can be stress, unfamiliarity with the environment, a team which is not uh, cohesive and yep. working well and so welcoming. communication's a big, uh, big poor, one. Poor communication, uh, distraction, um, and all of those things. And not having a, a clear algorithm... Mm-hmm. And a team which is working well can lead to the major problem during airway management, which is the human factor error known as fixation error, where you fixate at a certain point and can't move past that. Mm -hmm. And an example of that in airway management, I mean, this can happen in any situation in medicine and outside of medicine um, in the real world. But an example in airway management is someone passes an endotracheal tube and thinks that it's in the trachea, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And despite there are being adequate signs that they haven't been successful in intubating the trachea, they just can't move past it because they think they saw it, it. They saw it, that it's yeah. gone through, and it could be in the esophagus or somewhere else. That's right. Yeah. So Elliot talked about a few different airway, difficult airway types, and I think that's really important that we can actually label those mm-hmm. um, and that can help sort of clarify what we're talking about 
um, to the listener, the anatomical difficult airways, which can be due to pathology, acquired pathology yep. such as infection uh, or um, you know a tumour growing, mm-hmm. or anatomical difficulty due to a congenital abnormality yep. and such as be, Pierre, yeah. Pierre Robin or something like that, yep. they're actually rare. I mean, they're relatively common in our hospital, which tends to gather these sorts of patients, yep. but they're still actually rare compared to the common problem of difficult airway in general. So those are difficulties in mask ventilation and laryngoscopy. Mm-hmm. And I call these the Hollywood airways because yeah. they're the ones which get all the, the glamour and the, the buzz. press yeah. and the buzz. But they're actually, they're actually rare. The patients who present and require intubation in the emergency department are the, the, the patients who are physiologically deranged. Mm-hmm. They might have single or multi-organ system failure. They could be on the point of arrest and they yeah. are a difficult patient to manage and therefore they are an airway which must be handled with care and with expertise. Mm-hmm. If someone's about to arrest, it's not necessarily a great one for someone to train Correct. to train on. So that's the, the physiological difficult mm-hmm. airway. The situationally difficult airway is dependent on the, the, the background of the person. So Elliot are managing a airway in ED and he's in his comfort zone, his familiar environment, he works every day. It's not necessarily situationally difficult for him, yeah. but it could be for an anaesthetic registrar who goes down there in the middle of the night who in this first week of this hospital. Yeah. Likewise for me, as someone who is full-time here and has been for many years, I'm comfortable going down to ED, but I have situations in which I'm out of my comfort zone as well. Mm-hmm. If I have to go to the Royal Women's Hospital mm-hmm. and be involved in uh, airway management in a newborn in an exit procedure. Mm-hmm. Then the most common one, which you as a recovery nurse mm-hmm. might, might experience, is what we call the functional difficult airway. So this yeah. is someone who has no anatomical problem, perhaps no physiological problem. Mm-hmm. You're in your comfortable environment, but the patient has laryngospasm as a function of what's happening, and it's a reversible thing, but the patient can turn blue very quickly yep, correct. and become hypoxic and bradycardic, even needing CPR. Mm-hmm. And that is probably an anesthesia, well, definitely an yep. anesthesia, the most common problem we face. That was such a great answer. You kind of mentioned the importance uh, previously about, you know, the success to a a good intubation or a good airway Mm. management is really preparation. And can you take us through um, perhaps what your management techniques would be for that and maybe some adjuncts that you would uh, use? Because you kind of touched on, you know, video assisted laryngoscopy as well. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Adequate preparation. I think what I would start off saying is that we, during our medical training and during any kind of life support course training, learn the ABCD approach to managing sick patients. And that can often be confused with the need to definitively manage an airway before addressing breathing circulation disability. Mm -hmm. And in general, most of the kids that we look after that we end up intubating, they don't have a primary airway problem. Mm -hmm. There are exceptions to the rule. um, And you could think of a few like foreign body aspiration, Mm -hmm. croup, upper airway obstruction. But if we take even those examples uh, and follow them through, the ideal management for a croup that needs to be intubation is slow gas induction. Mm -hmm. It's not to, you know, paralyze them and and try to intubate them right away. So even our kind of worst case scenarios or the cases that keep us up at night and 
uh, that are the subject of a lot of training and discussion, even those ones we manage in a careful, considered way. So what I'm getting at is that uh, that traditional mindset needs a little bit of refinement and changing when we're actually looking at how to implement it in practice. And functionally, that means that patients um, need to be, in general, resuscitated before we mm-hmm. go ahead and intubate them. And yeah. um, and failure to perform that resuscitative stage of the treatment will often result in catastrophic complications or adverse events during intubation. And so that's probably the first thing just to keep in mind for clinicians yeah. is that although we're managing the airway, this isn't a critical airway mm-hmm. and we need to manage the airway in the context of the whole patient. Yeah, of the unwell child. Yeah. Of the unwell child. And if you if we try to intubate a, an unwell child without doing the resuscitation mm-hmm. first, uh, then, then that will lead to adverse events. And these aren't kind of minor adverse events like, uh, you know, chipped teeth and stuff like that, although, yeah. you know, not to belittle that, yeah. but they're, they're really kind of life-threatening adverse events. Mm-hmm. Like there is a significant risk of cardiac arrest and risk of hypotension mm-hmm. and hypoxia, and those have been shown to worsen outcomes. So they're kind of adverse events that have a major impact on patient recovery and long-term well-being. So the approach is, um, first of all, to address situational factors mm-hmm. like the team, yep. uh, make sure you have a, a team leader. Team leader. With, yep. So I guess I should state at this, at this point that a lot of the things that we try to manage when we're intubating sick patients are hard to keep in our heads, mm-hmm. you know, 24-7 that we can bring out um, when, when, a, when a critical incident like this happens. And therefore, a lot of them are written down in paper-based form in the form of checklists. So that's probably the easiest way to yeah. address this question is to yeah. Have a checklist. <laughs> actually use your checklist. <laughs> yeah. And the checklist runs through everything that you need to do to prepare, mm-hmm. to prepare for an emergency intubation, uh, which starts off with management of the team. Yeah. Uh, make sure that you've, you've notified someone senior that you're doing an intubation. Make sure you have a team leader and allocate roles. Who's going to do the airway? Who's the most experienced person in this team to, to manage this patient's airway? Do we need to call for help right away? Um, if it's a, you know, as you mentioned earlier, is yeah. this an anticipated difficult airway? And usually at that stage, we actually allocate a post-intubation debrief lead mm-hmm. who can kind of keep an eye on what's happening during the intubation, maintain some situational awareness. Yeah, that's um, great. And those are important things for us to discuss after the intubation and to share those learnings um, across the department and hopefully across the hospital. The second step is preparing the patient. So mm-hmm. that's the resuscitation. Make yeah. sure that you've addressed hypoxia, you've addressed hypotension, uh, you've addressed the patient position um, so that the patient's as optimized as they can be mm-hmm. for the intubation attempt. The next step is usually to make sure that all the monitoring is in place and yeah. that it's uh, set up for managing a patient you're about to intubate. So that mm-hmm. means having auditory cues, the blood pressure cuff running at certain cycles, uh, time cycles. You've got things like end tidal CO2 ready to yeah. go, uh, maybe even attached to the uh, to the face mask before you intubate the patient. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is making sure the intubation equipment is ready. And when we discuss things like standardization of equipment, we've taken that to another level in emergency where we standardize not just the equipment, but the equipment location so that... Oh, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is yeah. kind of like a shadow board or a, a template mm-hmm. that the airway assistant or the mm-hmm. intubator themselves prepare in advance. Yeah. Um, but it means that if I go to ma- manage an airway and someone else has set up the airway equipment, I know that everything that I'm going to need for it's, that patient all is all there. Yeah. And, it, and it, it's not just one or two endotracheal tubes. It's 
the plan A, the first three attempts, the plan B, the plan C, and the plan D, all that equipment is ready and appropriately sized for that patient. And in a way that template or kind of batching or grouping all that equipment together means that airway checklist is a little bit simplified. We don't need Mm -hmm. to check if there's a supraglottic airway out, if there's two endotracheal tubes. We can just say, is the equipment template ready? Ready. Check. That takes care of, you know, 10 or 11 different pieces of equipment. And then the last thing that we want to make sure we have is our video laryngoscope and Mm -hmm. potentially some different types of blades, depending on what type of intubation we're doing. Oh, that's fantastic. You've really taken us through kind of the whole journey of that, you know, intubation um, in the, like I could really visualize it, you know, in the ED department. And I guess it's a little bit different from our department in the perioperative in the sense that you're doing this all the time. Are there any similarities and differences that you see with the whole, you know, preparation for you to have a successful intubation? The ED intubates someone down there in the department roughly one or two times per week. You know, it's a a patient who presents and they're unwell. And as Elliot has already said, it's an entire procedure with multi-different facets of which the airway management is just one of them. Resuscitation is important. It's an event. There's definitely some differences Mm -hmm. and there's definitely some similarities. And there's definitely some things that we could learn from and take from ED and, and take into our practice. We're managing airways all day, every all day. Time, yeah. And so we don't make a, an event out of it to that extent. There is a, a spectrum of when how airways become more, more and more difficult. difficult and how we need to prepare for them. And mm-hmm. under recognition and under preparation for the ones that we need to prepare for is something where I think we could improve upon. Mm-hmm. When we deal with some of those difficult anatomical airways, the Hollywood airways, mm-hmm. Usually, but not always, but usually they are in an elective fashion. So you have a patient who you know about ahead of time. They present in their, as good as they can be as a patient from a wellness point of view, Mm -hmm. from their uh, medical comorbidities, and they are fasted. We have, you know, everything that we need ready. It's a different thing. And we know from our... And we usually we hopefully have, not always, but sometimes they've been intubated before and we can mm-hmm. look at what happened. Have so a we look can, at how that went before. So we can target, we can target our preparation mm-hmm. specifically um, to that patient. Where I think we could be better is having some more formality to it in terms of checklists and use of cognitive mm-hmm. aids and formalization and, and verbalization of plans where what we're going to do if this first attempt doesn't yep. work, second attempt doesn't work. Airway enthusiasts mm-hmm. amongst the department do it, but it's not it's not universal. Yeah, and it's not kind of set out in the same um, manner. And I, I just, it's very much yeah. a horses for yeah. courses. Airway management yeah. needs to be tailored to the environment. One of the most common questions I get as the as the airway mm-hmm. airway person from other hospitals is, what should I put on the what intubate. should I have on the trolley? Oh, what should I have yeah. on the airway trolley? You know, the difficult airway trolley. And I, there's no one answer to that because you have to ta- tailor it to your environment. There are other major pediatric hospitals where we could almost do a comparison between mm-hmm. them. There are mixed hospitals, which I do high-level cases. There are smaller private cost hospitals. There are regional hospitals. Correct. So you can have anything from a very advanced, difficult airway trolley that we have 
one of in the operating um, theatre department because we've got airway equipment in every other location, so we just have the difficult equipment which yeah, we in bring. In one location, which yeah. we bring. And then you have a small hospital in, you know, in Warnable where they bring in the sort of the paediatric trolley when they do the, the one, the one, list, kid, yeah. one peds list a week that they, yeah. they, they do. And how that's what you put on there and how it's laid out needs to be bespoke to that yeah. environment. Yeah. I think it's really interesting when you, when you talk about what is probably kind of implicit knowledge and implicit mm-hmm. communication in the operating theatre. Yeah. When you're working with the same person a lot of the time in the same equipment in the same environment, you can kind of do that. You can kind of, I, I wouldn't say get away with it because it, it, it just works. It, it would be mm-hmm. ridiculous for you to go through a plan A to D for every patient. You'd, mm-hmm. look, yeah. you'd look kind of like you're a bit nuts, like an airway <laughs> crazy person. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, for, for us, yeah. the, it's really important to be explicit with mm-hmm. our communication and our planning because we don't have that that tight group that we're working with or the tight person that we're working with time after time and the equipment we're using may be variable depending on the patient that comes in. So it's a really kind of important point, the situation that you're using, the that you're intubating the patient in has a large bearing on how much preparation you need to do mm. and how much of that is implicit and how much is explicit. And yeah. it's quite different in the anesthetic setting from uh, from emergency and I think from, you know, even kind of ICU or retrieval type intubations. Yeah, fantastic. I actually wanted to ask you another question just in regards to, you know, if we talk about the algorithm that we have here at RCH, many other hospitals actually adapt and and make their own. I just wanted to ask you just in regards to the attempts. So if we were to like kind of break it down a little bit with the attempts, how many attempts would you have in intubation before then you, you get your plan B, which usually for us would be our laryngeal mass? That's a great question, Tanya. I think that Part of the the skill of implementing an algorithm is knowing its limitations and mm-hmm. what the intent of the algorithm is in the first place. So although the algorithm says you can have up to three attempts as mm-hmm. part of your plan A, there are circumstances where we will have zero attempts yeah. and we will skip immediately to plan B, which is to call for help and get yeah. someone who might have expertise with a different technique or different equipment that we don't carry in emergency. Mm-hmm. Or we may transport the patient to the operating theater to have a, a gas induction or a fiber optic intubation. So that's recognition of the skill limitation and the equipment limitations that we have in our environment. Not every patient gets three attempts before yeah. we move on to plan B. Yeah. But if you were to read the algorithm verbatim, that's mm-hmm. what it states. Um, but I guess the important take home is that the algorithm needs to be interpreted in the context of the situation you're in. And it doesn't always mean that you have to... Have the three attempts before you actually move to the next step. Our algorithm was ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to (laughs) be blow the trumpet a little bit in that the we had a a a section for preparation, uh, which you're now seeing more commonly in algorithms. Mm -hmm. Where in fact, almost half of it is about preparation and how you plan, who your help is, where are they, what their phone numbers are. Um, how you can optimize things and if in doubt, call for help before you even start doing mm-hmm. anything. So we recognize that most of the problems that lead to airway-related morbidity and even potentially mortality are avoidable yeah. and are simple things mm-hmm. and unglamorous things. 
And But if you get them right, it makes a big difference to patient outcome. Yeah. And that's why the preparation is so important and, and the communication and all those human factors, things that you spoke about, they're really the key to a successful intubation and, you know, and positive outcomes for patients. Yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting when we've, Steph and I have done quite a few courses together with, the, with trainees from different specialties and I think the trainees come into these pediatric airway courses wanting to come out with skills and mm-hmm. knowledge about knowing how to the use doing. video laryngoscopy yeah. and, you know, the D-blade and, you know, fiber optic intubation and stuff like that. That's actually not where the money is. The money yeah. is on on doing the simple stuff right every time. And it's it's stuff like having a standardized approach, mm-hmm. communicating well, yeah. um, resuscitating the patient, having a plan for unsuccessful attempts, calling for help early. Those kinds of things are what actually make the difference. Yeah. It's not being a gun intubator, yeah. um, although... That's what we like. All it worry helps. About. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, absolutely, it does. But but it's kind of the little things that I like that word unglamorous. They're not mm-hmm. they're not kind of the showy stuff. It's actually just doing the doing this basic stuff right every time. And that's such a key message for our listeners today. You know, especially we've got so many listeners who are in regional and rural settings. You know, out kind of in the middle of um, nowhere and overseas, maybe in quite um, you know maybe resource poor places. Yeah, that just don't yeah, have access. That to don't have access. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yes, the intubation, the difficult airway, those are skills that y- you have to have as clinicians. But that really, the the success is all in the communication preparation. It makes such a big difference. And it mirrors what happens in the in the sort of I suppose the greater perioperative environment mm-hmm. with the Safe Surgery Saves Lives initiative, where yeah. they realise that if the team involved in patient care within the operating theatre just introduced themselves, knew each other's names, highlighted any issues ahead of time. Guess what? You know, patient outcomes were better. And yeah. it took, you know, it, when we started doing it, everyone thought it was silly or yeah. what's the point? But now it's second silly, nature. Yeah, silly and simple, but it, it, those things actually really definitely lead to better outcomes. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. In the scenario where let's just say someone's presented either to the ED or maybe, you know, they've come in for some planned surgery and are there any tips and tricks that you would have for the scenario where you can't intubate, you can't ventilate? Because that's kind of the, the you know, um, for the listeners out there, the, the things that really strive fear into their hearts. Like what do we do? We've planned, we've prepared everything. We've got this child who is really difficult to ventilate or we're really struggling here. Can you um, kind of take us through that? I guess for our Victorian clinicians, they do have access to Piper, you know, which is our paediatric intensive care retrieval um, team who will go out to these places and bring the children back to a metropolitan centre. One craft group we've neglected to mention yep. today who is actually in our group mm-hmm. in, on our algorithm is the expertise of the ear, nose and throat surgeons. Yep. Even though they aren't necessarily sort of involved in the sort of airway management that we've been talking about today. They are very much a part of the team and they are part of the the end result and rescue. Um, and so they have been involved and they have endorsed our work and our, and our algorithm and at our hospital are very keen to be involved. So I think, you know, that is an important part in, in airway management as well because front of neck airway rescue mm-hmm. is, is very, very challenging. It, the best of times in adults, it's exponentially harder um, in children, the smaller you get. And having them available is very important. Thankfully, a can't intubate, can't oxygenate emergency in children is very rare. Usually there's a bit of time to get ear, nose and throat surgeons present, 
because unanticipated problems are extremely rare. Yeah. So to the, we to the extent that um, we got a lot of flack for one of the papers we wrote together about canning to make can oxygenate. Where oh, people, tell us about that. Well, it essentially... <laughs> tell us about that. Though. Tell yeah. us about that. <laughs> well, have a seat. <laughs> so this was kind of a, an institutional approach to candy to can oxygenate that we had come up with through the airway special interest mm-hmm. group and, and standardized equipment and approach throughout the hospital. And we want to share that experience um, more broadly because we thought it was important for other people to come up with their own solution to that problem, yeah. but to have a leg up, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, from what the work that we had done. The pushback we got for that was really that that we were advocating for uh, kind of early front of neck access or fr- front of neck access all right. at all yeah. when that wasn't really an option for children. And they can almost always be managed um, through a traditional approach mm-hmm. um, above, like through oral tracheal intubation uh, or, or through an ear, nose and throat mm-hmm. uh, surgeon that could come and rescue the airway. They're exceptionally rare yeah. uh, circumstances. But the alternative to not doing anything is that the patient sure. dies. Correct. It's not. It's not. You'd want a plan. You want a plan for when you ca- you've is, run out of plans. Exactly. This yeah. is the the classic situation where it's infrequent, mm-hmm. high stakes, high stress. Yeah. You want to have all the equipment and the planning and preparation done well in advance, not at the time of the of the patient deterioration. Yeah. Um, so that you have an approach and it's defensible. You mm-hmm. can, if you if you went down that pathway. That was your institutional approach to that situation. And, you know, the, the potential for patient disastrous outcome is very high. Yeah. But if you're following your institutional pathway and you've done your due diligence with training and using standardized equipment, then it's a defensible pathway. When I'd like to sort mm-hmm. of clarify the, the traditional anesthetic framework for a kind intubate, kind oxygenate emergency is, you know, an adult who has a potentially unanticipated problem and you've induced anesthesia they, you are unable to ventilate them or oxygenate them and you have to go through the front of neck. Mm-hmm. And that type of situation is, is very rare in yeah. children. What we do have more commonly though, mm-hmm. and, and what we're avoiding in that situation through the work of the special interest group and all of the, the every, everyone and, in it, yeah. is we have had many sort of uh, near critical airways where we have had time to get them to the operating theater, get every, all the teams involved, uh, have the nurses, uh, the right nurses, have the right equipment all ready, and then we secure the airway. And that has been through the front of neck yeah. because we haven't been able to achieve a supraglottic airway rescue, so we have an infraglottic airway rescue. Mm-hmm. And that happens, you know, once you know, once or twice a year at, yeah. at our hospital. So it's not mm-hmm. rare, but it's not the traditional can't intubate, can't oxygenate emergency. Right. We are kind of just managing to to keep enough oxygen while the inners and throat surgeons do a very, very fast tracheostomy, which isn't necessarily what they would call, you know, a, you know, a slash, mm-hmm. a slash trachea. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, um, just because the end point isn't front of neck access, there are probably more commonly circumstances where we have an ear, nose and throat surgeon involved in the airway management of a patient who doesn't end up getting front of neck access, but yeah. they're at the bedside yeah. with their equipment ready ready to go yeah. in the event that... Providing that support and assistance yeah. if required. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Nothing's better than when they just take their gloves off and walk out and say, yeah. see ya, yeah. and having yeah. not, not having yeah. done anything. So like, day. perfect. <laughs> but you've got the backup there if you need it. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. What would your take-home messages from today's podcast would be to our listeners? Yeah, I think that the airway management happens in context and the context is the patient context and the, and the situation that the 
patients being managed in. And I think paying attention to the, both of those things um, while you're managing the airway is crucial to avoiding severe adverse events. Yeah. And how about for yourself? Uh, my take-home message would be to always match the experience and skill set of the person who's doing the intubation or managing the airway with the, the greater situation. So if anything's out of line, that's when you should call for help as soon as that's recognized, which would ideally be before you start, but yeah. it's not always. And that's not through um, a lack of care or due diligence, mm -hmm. but it could be as early as possible. So if the patient's really sick or the airway looks difficult or the environment is challenging or the experience of the person who's doing the airway management is not the best that the hospital can offer at mm -hmm. that point in time or the, the right level for that, all that difficulty, that's when you should refer. Yeah, call for help. Well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate your time and expertise today. Thank Thanks you so much, Tanya. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, Check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat.